you know what? Every time you have some work to do, make sure you always do it in the... I just had to get Steve Carell a shout out there. Well, Steve Carell and Rain Wilson and all, and the entire cast whose name is escaping me right now, and that I apologize for. I hope all of you can get that. And I know you're going, well, duh, who who doesn't? That that was The Office. Well, the theme anyway. And I must admit. And I know you are gonna go. Gah! How would you? How dare you say that? I never really saw much of a lot of episodes of The Office. I love its spinoff, which was created by Justin Spritzer. Uh, Superstore, hilarious. Love Superstore. And for those who like The Office, I would highly. Highly recommend Superstar. One of the funniest shows I've ever seen. Just hysterical. And there's also a lot of... I don't know how it gets me into what I wanted to go into today. Something that's just extremely... All stories about this type of thing are extremely interesting to me. Just adventure stories. It tells the stories of... People fighting against all odds that threaten to kill them and keep them down. And people who who obviously, yes, have got a lot of money to spend for an expedition like that. But who fight against all odds and push themselves. And really, athleticism and stuff like that. And it's just, it, these stories are amazing to me. And what I want to get into is a 1967 disaster on Denali. In Alaska, what was commonly known as, I guess commonly known, or typically known as Mount McKinley. But I have always known it as Denali, and that's what I prefer to call it. And I've done a lot of research, it's taken a lot of time, and I've done a lot of research. And this is from the article by, by Kelly McMillan Manley, and I'm going to cite my resources just to give them a proper credit, from 5280. That's the article that I the article that I used, and a lot of it is also going to be some interviews and some pointers from people who were the survivors. It's just the story is really really interesting. Twenty seven days after leaving the boggy lowlands of Denali National Park and Preserve in Alaska, Paul Schlichter and Howard Schneider stood atop twenty thousand three hundred twenty foot Denali, the highest peak in North America. It was July 15, 1967, and the 22-year-old climbers slapped each other's backs and admired the wide-open views. You could see forever. Not too windy, not too cold, Schlichter says. Now 72, and originally from Lakewood. It was sunny and about 6 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeesh. Really cold. 
spot warm for Denali, which is among the coldest places on Earth. The 17,400-foot Mount Foraker was visible in the distance. You could order it better than we had. You couldn't order it better than we had on that day," says Snyder, also 72, who grew up in Boulder and today lives in Canada. Today being at the time of the article. So when I say today, it's referring to the time of the article, which I'm trying to get a date on the article here, and it's kind of coming up a little tough to do. July, there it is, found it, July 2017. So that's what that's what's meant by today. Schlichter and Snyder were part of a team called the Wilcox Expedition, a team named for leader Joe Wilcox, a 12-man group of loosely affiliated climbers from around the country who'd come together at the last minute, ranging in age from 22 to 31 and led by Joe Wilcox a 24-year-old graduate student at Brigham Young University. They hoped to climb Denali via the Muldrow Glacier on the north side of the mountain, a line that's more remote and less expensive to access than the common West Buttress option, which is the most common way up the peak. Initially, Schlichter and Snyder planned to climb Denali with their own Colorado group, which consisted of the pair, a pair of two other men, Jerry Lewis, a 30-year-old Army vet and college student from Boulder, and his younger brother Steve. But Steve broke his nose, broke his nose and hand in a car accident, car accident, seven hours before the team was set to leave for Alaska. The group was thus reduced to three one man short of the minimum requirement, and the National Park Service at the time suggested the Colorado contingent, Schneider, Schlichter, and Lewis, join forces with a nine-man Wilcox expedition. An hour and a half after reaching the summit, <coughs> Schneider, Schlichter, Lewis, and Wilcox began their descent. They worked their way down Summit Ridge, which plunges 8,500 feet on one side to the to the Kahiltna Glacier below, trudging past Archdeacon's Tower, a small sub-peak at 19,393 feet. And they continued on to Denali Pass, about 1,000 feet lower, where the wind began to pick up. Meanwhile, eight other climbers from their party were preparing for their own summit bid after a day of rest at lower elevations. Above them, wispy cirrus clouds painted the sky. Mare's tails, the unsettling signature of an approaching storm. Known as the Great One, the area's indigenous Athabascan people, Denali denominates the landscape of south, of south central Alaska. Rising 18,000 feet, from the surrounding plateau, which sits 2,000 feet above sea level. As a result of this dramatic vertical relief, Denali offers one of the longest base-to-summit climbs on the planet, one that's about 6,000 feet greater than that of Everest, where climbers start their 17,000 feet 
and top out at 29,000 now, at the time of this article, 29,029 feet. Now it's 29,035 feet. Since it was first summited in 1913, Denali, which was, a, which was officially renamed from McKinley to its indigenous moniker in 2015, Denali has seen 22,608 people reach its summit as of the current time, 2017, of the article. When the Wilcox expedition made its attempt in 1967, however, only 213 people had ever scaled it, with an average summit success rate of about 50%. Denali's challenge lies not so much in its technical difficulty, like K2, as you heard from a previous episode. K2 is extremely possibly one of the most technically difficult mountain, or the most technically difficult mountain on Earth. And lost my place, set my notes, and the article. There it is. <laughs> I always lose my place. Denali's challenge lies not so much in its technical difficulty, but rather in its highly unpredictable conditions. It is the toughest mountain on Earth because of the weather, says Chris Tomer, a Denver-based meteorologist who has forecasted for teams on Denali for the past 10 years. Denali is roughly located at the 63rd parallel north compared to Everest, which sits about 28 degrees north latitude, almost the same as Florida's Walt Disney World. Storm... Storm systems are stronger and move faster at higher latitudes, and air temperatures are colder. Well, duh. Whereas Everest lies in the middle of the Asian continent, more than 1,000 miles from the nearest major body of water, Denali is situated about 200 miles from the Gulf of Alaska, and some 400 miles from the Bering Sea. As such, the mountain is subjected to an intense, low-pressure system that is stronger than those in almost any other place on the planet. These systems give birth to storms that can emerge out of nowhere and have the potential to be powerful and extremely bone-chillingly cold and to roll in one after the other over the course of a week and possibly longer. On top of all that, Denali's immense topographical relief enhances snow topical relief enhances snow totals dramatically. Air is lifted as wind slams into Denali, and rising air at those altitudes develops into clouds and snow. A typical six-inch snowfall turns into a foot quickly, Tomer says. Denali he adds, is in the perfect position for a perfect storm. About two hours after leaving the summit, Schlichter, Snyder, Wilcox, and Lewis arrived at their camp at 17,900 feet, where they found their eight teammates preparing for the summit bid. That team planned to depart the next day, July 16th. It was no surprise Schlichter and Snyder had made it to the summit. With the first team, they were two of the most experienced and fit climbers uh, 
in the Wilcox Expedition. After meeting in 1963 in the Summer Civics Leadership Course, they spent four years honing their mountaineering skills and forging their friendship. As Colorado's Fortniers, Washington's 14,000, well, the article says it is taller than that. Washington, the state I'm in, Washington's 14,410 foot, it's now 14,411 foot Mount Rainier, and 18,491 foot Pico de, Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. Sorry for the butchering of that, which I'm sure I did. Schlichter had graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs in June and was preparing for pilot training at the end of the summer. He was reserved and possessed a quiet fortitude that lent itself to mountaineering and the military. There was the more gregarious of the two, Snyder was working toward his geography degree from the University of Colorado Boulder. He was charismatic and engaging and had been a leader of the Colorado team before his squad was folded into the Wilcox expedition. The other climbers on the team had varying degrees of experience and physical conditioning. Everyone struggled with Denali's high elevations. However, aside from Schlichter and Snyder, no one had ever been above 15,000 feet. After waiting out adverse weather, including 70 mile per hour winds and blowing snow, the Wilcox expedition woke to cloudy, breezy weather on the 17th, but the skies cleared as the morning progressed. By 1 p.m. it was sunny and near cloudless and the four men who had already summited prepared to head down to camp at 15,000 feet, expecting that the others would start for their summit 10 to 15 minutes after their departure. Anshel Schiff, a 30-year-old assistant college professor from Indiana, had, begun, had been battling altitude sickness. At the last minute, he decided to forego the summit and head down the mountain with Schneider and Schlichter. As Schneider, Schlichter, Lewis, Wilcox, and Schiff hiked down to the lower camp, they had a clear view of a 17,900-foot camp above them. They were surprised to see that the second group had not yet left for the top. Instead, the Mountaineers were milling about camp, packing, tidying up, and searching for fuel bottles that had been stashed in gear that had been buried by the previous day's storm. You do not waste good weather on Denali, Schlichter says. When the weather is good, you go. That's not just Denali. That's advice that they give you all over the place. That's advice that you hear on Everest. That's advice you hear on K2. When the weather is good, get the heck up there. And don't race and don't scramble up there. But when the weather is good, get the heck up there. Because... Especially in K2 and Everest, you're so high up in K2, you're so steep that if the weather's good, it's probably not going to be good for very long. So, very long, but very long, I mean maybe 20 minutes, half hour maybe. You gotta get up there as quick as you can. And getting up there quickly might be a little bit easier on Everest because it's not, it's not nearly as steep, but 
quickly it means a steady pace not rushing up there you don't want to rush anything on k2 you don't want to rush it because you look at pictures of it it's so steep it's so technical and so advanced you can't rush anything the mountain will snuff you out like like that and it's it's and this, so when they say that about about Denali, it's very easy to believe. It's it's the, it's true about all the other mountains. And led by Jerry Clark, a 31-year-old electrical engineer from Eugene, Oregon, who'd been on expeditions to Antarctica, the second team finally left for the summit around 3 p.m. Suffering from altitude sickness, recent college graduate Steve Taylor, who was 23 opted to stay behind at the high camp, which meant that six men were now heading for the top. About five hours later, at 8.30 p.m., Clark radioed the Rangers at, at Eilson, E-I-E-L-S-O-N, Eilson, Eilson Visitor Center, and reported that they were high up on the mountain and unsure of where they were. An intense fog had closed in, making it impossible for the team to see the route to the top. The team hunkered down for the night, hoping the weather would be clear. Because they had been planning to move quickly up and down the mountain, they had little food, few sleeping bags, and no tents. Yikes. Just, just yikes. At 11.30 a.m. on July 18th, Clark again radioed the rangers at the visitor center, relaying the news that his team had made it to the summit. Clark reported that it was 7 degrees, the wind was blowing, they were experiencing whiteout conditions, and they planned to head down within 5 to 10 minutes. The team also reported that five men, Dennis, Dennis Luchterhand, Henry James, Mark McLaughlin, Walt Taylor, and Clark had made it to the top. The sixth man, John Russell, was not accounted for. They closed out the conversation from the summit by saying the team would radio again at 8 o'clock that night. The call never came. After the team signed off from the summit, on July 18th, one of the worst storms in Denali's history attacked the mountain. According to, according to the National Weather Service, gusts, on the high, gusts high on the peak increased to 100 miles per hour, per hour and eventually reached 300. Temperatures plunged to 15 to 30 degrees below zero. By the time Schneider, Schneider and Schlichter's group of five reached base camp on July 25th, the other seven members of the expedition were likely dead. Denali would be the final resting place for Luchterhand, Janes, Walt Taylor, Steve Taylor, Russell, McLaughlin, and Clark. Only three bodies were ever found. Ravaged by the elements, no one knows definitively whose remains they were or what exactly transpired high on the peak during the storm. But Snyder and Schlichter have theories. Namely, that after the call from the summit, the men were hit by the monster tempest. These guys were still either on the very summit itself, 
or on the summit ridge above 20,000 20, feet when the storm hit, Schneider says. All of a sudden, the air turns opaque. You can't see anything, and the wind starts immediately. You can't imagine a worst-case scenario. In weather like that, backpacks blow away and the wind rips gloves off hands. Trying to navigate down the peak in those conditions would have been impossible. Schlichter adds, I think they, sat, they started down and they reached the point where they said, it's every man for himself. Two of the bodies were found on the slopes of the Archdeacon's Tower. I think those two bodies were probably Walt Taylor and Denny Luchterhand, Schlichter says. Those two guys were in pretty good shape, pretty healthy, and pretty strong. Snyder believes they tried to make a beeline directly from the Archdeacon's Tower down a steep 4,000-foot slope to the camp at 15,000 feet and perished along the way. Another body was found at the high camp. Snyder believes it was Russell. He suspects that at some point during the summit bid, weakened by elevation, Russell turned around and headed back to the high camp, where he was overcome by the storm. Steve Taylor's ice axe and sleeping bag were found at the lip of the Harper Icefall between the high camp and the 15,000 foot camp, close to a crevasse that had a hole in its snow bridge. The speculation what a snow bridge is is exactly the way it sounds. A snow bridge. A bridge of snow over an expanse, or usually over a crevasse. There's one big one out here on Everest. Uh, out here on Everest. Out here on Everest. Yeah, there's Everest out here. <laughs> out here on Mount Rainier. There's a big snow bridge over a big crevasse out here on Mount Rainier, and it had to do with I believe the bridge is reformed. Actually, it had to do. There's a there's a book about about the oh God. I'm blanking on the name of the book right now. There's a book about uh, two two best friends who were climbing Mount Rainier, and on the way back down, the snow bridge that they had crossed over, they didn't see the crevasse. Um, the snow bridge collapsed, and they both fell in the crevasse. Uh, I won't. The Ledge. I believe it's called The Ledge. I won't disclose any more of that because the book is extremely interesting. So I would heavily recommend looking into it. You also heard my elbow pop there. <laughs> I would heavily look into it. Um, so that's that's that's, exa that's exactly what a snow bridge is. It's, it's definition is what it sounds like. It's definition is in its name. The speculation was that he had gone that far set up his axe, and draped his sleeping bag around it as a signal to us down at 15,000 feet, Snyder says. Then, either trying to return to high camp, or trying to press on toward us, he had fallen into the crevasse. As for the other men, it is likely no one will ever know what happened to them. For years, the incident... There was... For years in talking about for, for years talking about the incident there was much debate about who or what was to blame people were critical of the National Park Service because they had because they believed mistakenly 
that it had forced the two expeditions to climb together, which meant that the team's dynamics were likely compromised. Others, namely the parents of the deceased, believe the National Park Service should have launched a rescue effort sooner. Leader Joe Wilcox came under heavy scrutiny. He was condemned for being unqualified to head up the expedition, having poor leadership skills and summiting with the Colorado contingent, instead of waiting to climb with members from his own team. Others believed that if he had exercised stronger leadership and forced Steve Taylor and Russell to, to descend to a lower elevation because of their compromised states, the tragedy's outcome would have been different. Wilcox, too, blames himself. It wasn't until three studies came out, two by the National Weather Service and one by the National Ocean NOAA, National Oceanic and, Oce National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, demonstrating that the storm was unsurvivable, that he was able to believe to absolve himself and move on. Wilcox. We couldn't have done anything for the climbers up there, says Joe, who teaches astronomy at the time of the article, 2017, at the University of Hawaii and splits his time between Hawaii and Washington State. It is certain, it, it's certainly taken me a long time and the advent of lots of studies to realize, to realize that, even though, he says, I knew these people and felt that they could have, they could have and should have survived. I now have to accept that they, and probably anybody else, couldn't have survived up there. Over time, Snyder and Schlichter have come to similar conclusions about what happened. The tragedy was caused by those guys not taking advantage of the good weather, first on our summit day, then their summit day, Snyder says, and mainly the weather. It doesn't matter how strong, how experienced, or how cautious you are. If you get caught in the circumstances that, that they were caught in, there's going to be the re that's going to be the result. Schlichter also believes that the outcome was probably inevitable. No, nothing anybody could have done would have made a difference. The 1967 episode remains the deadliest climbing disaster in American climbing history and Denali's history. But 50 years after the expedition, Schlichter and Snyder have come to terms with the episode. By the end of 1968, Schlichter was in Vietnam and the trauma of war soon overshadowed what happened on Denali. After his service, he went on to have a successful career in banking and security. He is now semi-retired, now 2017 again. He is now semi-retired and lives in Castle Rock. Snyder resides near Cardston, Alberta, where he is the director of the, of the Remington Carriage Museum, which houses the largest collection of horse-drawn carriages in North America. Although the tragedy in Denali shaped both men's lives and everyone else's lives, it did not diminish their affinity for nature, and they continued on to explore wild places in Colorado and beyond. Denali reinforced my love of the wilderness and the beauty you see in the wilderness, Snyder says. Sometimes things go terribly wrong, 
and the maximum price is exacted as it was on Denali but there is so much beauty in the mountains it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up I totally and 100% agree to that I have known people and I know people who have hiked to K2 base camp and one of one of my one of my friends um, he and his now wife hiked to K2 base camp they're both I, I, I was I, I guess I would say they're both mountaineers they don't really they would never I mean she has said and he agrees 100% she has she says she would never ever climb Everest or K2 ever there's too much risk there's way too much too much too much risk and the risk to her and like I said he agrees the risk to her far far outweighs any any challenge but but she totally she so totally understands and I and I do too totally understand the people's desire to see the world and to see the planet in a way they would never have seen it and, and very few people have although I don't want to say very few people quite a, for quite a few people have but there's nothing like seeing the world from the top of Everest or from the top of K2 you're seeing a view that very few people have seen that oh I said that again you're seeing a view that you would never have seen that you would never get to see again that is a view and I know P, uh, K2 is shorter than Everest and but it's it's it's, it's distant it's separate from Everest that the view that you get from K2 is a view that you would not get on Everest you wouldn't get that same view and Denali as well the view you get from Denali is not the view you'd get from K2 or from Everest or from Mount Rainier you just you wouldn't see that so there's nothing else like it and to be able to see that to be able to know that you put the effort and you climb there it's just unbelievably awesome it's just so cool and these people uh, these people are heroic their efforts and their strength to push themselves beyond recognition beyond strength it's just unbelievable it's just so beyond cool and so beyond awesome and they have to ask people ask a lot and people say do they know what's going to happen do they realize what's going to happen and you have to come in your head you have to come to come to terms with do you accept the risks are you willing to understand and accept the risks and some people say yes and some people say they are and that's in, that's courageous that that is incredibly i'm not i wouldn't be able to accept that risk and my friends i mentioned a few minutes ago are not willing to accept that risk but if they climb something shorter like mount rainier they take precautions they take everything into consideration and take precautions and the the legends of what happened on denali what happened on k2 and what happened on everest is just it's so touching and so inspiring and so and so incredible and so wonderful so amazing so make sure make sure you check that book out that i recommended the one things about um uh about forever on forever on the mountain that's about this disaster on on denali there is there's mountain there's books about k2 
Um, Ed Veasters wrote a book about K2. There's, um, I'm blanking again, no, no Way Down, uh, that's about K2, the K2 disaster. There's John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, very, very famous and very well done book and very well written. Um, I recommend all those books to just hear about the majesty and the wonderfulness that is, and the experience and the power these people have. And I want to make sure, so I want to thank you all. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sticking around with me as long as you have. Stick around for a little bit more in the end here. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K, on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the environment, the climate, the planet, and everything we can do to have an impact on it? Check out City Climate Corner on all the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on everything. You won't be disappointed. You'll enjoy and love what you're listening to. Mm-hmm.